welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 105, Suffix Summary. In this episode, we're going to look at the changing nature of suffixes in early Middle English. Last time, we explored how prefixes were evolving during this period, so this is really the second part of our look at new word elements that entered English with the arrival of loanwords from across the channel. Once again, we'll begin with the suffixes that were common during the Old English period, before the Norman Conquest. Then we'll look at some of the new suffixes that were introduced from Latin and French after the Conquest. Along the way, we'll also look at evidence for these new suffixes in the Uncrenoisa. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash historyofenglish. And as always, you can reach me by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. So let's turn to this episode and the evolution of suffixes in the early Middle English period. This time, I'm going to explore some of the common suffixes that were used in Old English and Early Middle English. I'm going to focus on those that still exist in Modern English because it would be almost impossible to discuss every suffix that existed in the earlier periods of English. Just as we saw with prefixes in the last episode, suffixes range from the very common to the really obscure. And there are so many of them that it's even difficult for scholars to list all of them. Back in the late 1800s, a Cambridge professor named Rev. Walter W. Skeet produced a book titled An Etymological Dictionary of the English Language. Even though it's a bit dated, it's a great source for early research in English etymology. In the appendix to the book, Skeet attempted to list the prefixes and suffixes used in English. He included over 400 prefixes, but when he tried to list the suffixes, he apparently gave up. In the section on suffixes, he wrote the following, quote, The number of suffixes in modern English is so great, and the forms of several, especially the words derived through the French from Latin, are so variable that an attempt to exhibit them all would tend to confusion, End quote. So instead of including an actual list of suffixes, he simply referenced other sources where various lists could be found. Part of the reason why there are so many suffixes in English is because inflections were traditionally added to the end of words. So lots of suffixes serve very specific grammatical functions. If we want to make a noun plural, we usually add something to the end of the word, an s or an es or en like in children, or an i like in alumni, and so on. Those are all suffixes but I'm not going to focus on those types of grammatical suffixes. Instead, I want to explore the suffixes that we use to form new words. Of course, those suffixes sometimes serve a grammatical function as well. We can take a verb, like inflate, and convert it into a noun by adding ion to the end, producing the word inflation. We can turn that noun into an adjective by adding ary to the end, producing the word inflationary. So sometimes these suffixes allow us to create variations of existing words. And again, there are lots of them in modern English. Lawrence Erdang was a well-known scholar and lexicographer, and he was the managing editor of the Random House Dictionary. 
He passed away a few years ago, but during his lifetime, he published a collection of English suffixes that was over 250 pages long. A few episodes back, I mentioned that the first proper English dictionary was composed in the year 1604 by a man named Robert Cowdery. Over half of the words in his dictionary contained suffixes. So we deal with suffixes all the time when we speak and write English, and most of the time we don't even give them a second thought, but they are fundamental to the language. Now, if we try to narrow down that long list of suffixes to the basic ones that we use all the time, we would find that we mostly use about 50 or 60 common suffixes in our everyday speech. Those are found in a large percentage of the words we use every day. And those most common suffixes are a blend of Old English suffixes and suffixes from across the channel. Last time, we saw that Old English prefixes experienced a decline in Middle English as Latin, Greek, and French prefixes came in. And the same thing happened with suffixes. But the older suffixes tended to be a little bit more durable. Most of those Old English suffixes have survived into Modern English even if they are no longer used to create new words. And that's the case with the Old English suffix lock. Lock was usually spelled L-A-C in Old English, and it was used to refer to certain actions or proceedings associated with a given root word. It was somewhat common in Old English, so the word fechtlock or fightlock meant the action of fighting, so it meant warfare. But this common Old English suffix fell out of use in Middle English. Today, it only survives at the end of one Modern English word, and that's the word wedlock. Since we don't really tend to use that suffix today outside of that one word, most people don't realize that the lock part of wedlock is a suffix. Many people think it's the modern word lock. So they think of wedlock as the state of being locked or bound together in marriage. But it doesn't actually mean that. The lock part of wedlock is just a lingering Old English suffix. And it's actually unrelated to the modern word lock. Another Old English suffix that has largely disappeared is the suffix red, R-E-D. It was used to indicate a specific state or condition. It's actually derived from the Old English word radon, which meant to advise or counsel. It was sometimes used at the end of Old English personal names like Alfred and Ethelred. In fact, you might remember that it was used as a pun on Ethelred's name, Ethelred the Unready, which meant Ethelred the Poorly Advised. This word fell out of use in Middle English, and that included its use as a suffix. Outside of personal names like Alfred, it only survives today at the end of the words hatred and kindred. Another Old English suffix that experienced a decline was the suffix wise. I've noted before that the Old English word wisdom is cognate with the Latin word vision. They are both derived from an Indo-European root word that meant to see. The sense of observing the world around you and acquiring knowledge led to the modern sense of the Old English words wisdom and wise. But the word wise also acquired a different sense in Old English. If you observed the world around you 
You noticed how things worked and how they behaved. You noticed habits and customs and routines. And that led to the word wise as a noun, which referred to a particular manner or way or condition. And it was sometimes combined with other words, as in the word otherwise from Old English. It continued to be used well into the Middle English period, forming words like likewise, crosswise, and lengthwise. It even made it into the Modern English period in the word clockwise. But the only common word ending in wise that's been coined in the past century is the word streetwise. But that word uses wise in the more usual sense as smart. So it isn't really the traditional wise suffix. That means that there really hasn't been a common word formed with that suffix in English since clockwise in the late 1800s. A couple of other common Old English suffixes were less and full, both of which also survive as distinct words. Of course, less was used as a suffix to indicate the lack of something, and full was used as a suffix to mean a great deal of something. We have the less suffix in words like hopeless, timeless, reckless, and so on. And we have the full suffix in the Old English words wonderful, careful, and handful. The Ancrenoisa also gives us the first recorded use of the word dreadful, which is a combination of the Old English word dread and the full suffix. Now, the less and full suffixes have remained popular over the centuries, and they've routinely been attached to root words from Latin, French, and other languages. That's given us hybrid words like useless, regardless, graceful, grateful, and beautiful, just to name a few. In all of those words, the Old English suffix is attached to Latin or French root words. By the way, the word full is derived from an Indo-European root word that meant to fill and has been reconstructed as pela. Remember that the Indo-European P sound became an F sound in the Germanic languages. Well, the Latin version of that word produced the words plural and plenty. And I mention that because the word plenty also appears for the first time in the Ancrenoisa. And in the 1400s, the full suffix was added to the word plenty, producing the word plentiful. So the word plentiful is technically redundant. It literally means full of fullness. The root word and the suffix are cognate, and they both mean full or abundant. Old English also had several other suffixes that were used to form adjectives from other parts of speech. So if you wanted to create a word to describe something, you could use one of these suffixes. Several of these are still used in modern English. One was the en suffix, en. It allows us to turn gold into golden and old into olden. Wood turns into wooden and wool turns into woolen. This suffix was once very common, but it has stopped being used to create new words in English. And today, we generally ignore that suffix and just use the root word if we want to use it as an adjective. So rather than referring to a golden ring, we're just as likely to refer to a gold ring. And rather than discussing the olden days, 
we're just as likely to refer to the old days. Instead of a wooden chair or a woolen sweater, we're just as likely to refer to a wood chair or a wool sweater. So today that suffix is generally optional for adjectives, and when we use it, it tends to make our word choice sound older and more formal. Another Old English way to form adjectives was the ed suffix, ed. Of course, we also use an ed suffix on verbs when we want to express past tense, I talked or you listened. But that's a completely different suffix, even though it looks the same. That suffix is attached to verbs, but the suffix I'm discussing here is attached to nouns to convert them into adjectives. So it turns a man with a beard into a bearded man, a giant with two heads into a two-headed giant, a truck with six wheels into a six-wheeled truck. Other examples include a saber-toothed tiger and a wooded area. So this suffix is still used quite a bit today. Another way to form an adjective was to use the Old English suffix some, S-O-M-E. It allows us to convert lone into lonesome, and whole into wholesome, and awe into awesome, and so on. We can also form adjectives by adding a simple Y suffix to a word, to convert blood into bloody, and thirst into thirsty, and dream into dreamy. Of course, this is still a very common suffix, and it was originally a very common Germanic suffix, rendered in Old English as ig, spelled I-G. Now, that G may have been pronounced very early on, but it was probably silent for most of the Old English period. So, the word sandy was usually spelled in Old English as S-A-N-D-I-G, and dusty was usually spelled D-U-S-T-I-G. But modern scholars are confident that the G was silent in late Old English because almost all of the words with that suffix were re-spelled in the earliest Middle English documents without the G. And that suggests that the G was just a standard spelling convention by that point within Old English. And after the conquest, the French-trained scribes completely disregarded what had become a silent letter at the end. That just left an I at the end, which was soon re-spelled as Y. And this Y suffix remained very popular in early Middle English, producing words like happy, needy, and sleepy during that period. And it lives on to this day in new words. If a stew has a lot of onions in it, we might say that it has an oniony flavor. It might be served with mashed potatoes that are lumpy. And when you're finished eating, you might leave a table that is messy. Those are all modern English words formed with that very old suffix. And I should also note that Greek and Latin gave English another Y suffix attached to some words borrowed from those languages or borrowed from French. And it serves much of the same function as the native English suffix. So as a very general rule, when we see that Y at the end of a native English word, it usually came from Old English. And when we see it on the end of a loan word, it usually came in via Latin and Greek. But outside of tracing the etymology, there's no easy way to distinguish those two Y suffixes in modern English. 
And as far as modern English is concerned, it's really just one suffix today. Another Old English suffix that was used to form adjectives was the suffix ish, ish. And this particular suffix has found renewed life in modern English. The suffix is used to form words like childish, foolish, and selfish. It's also used to form words related to national origin and languages associated with those regions. Thus, words like English, Spanish, Danish, and so on. But it is in its sense as somewhat, or sort of, that it's gained renewed vigor in modern English. Traditionally, that sort of sense has been used in reference to things like colors, producing words like reddish, greenish, brownish, and so on. But it's also been applied to other adjectives to express that same sense of almost but not quite. Rather than meeting someone at exactly nine o'clock, we might plan to meet at nine-ish. We might describe a slightly humorous movie as funny-ish. And a recent television show in the United States about an upper-middle-class African-American family was called black-ish. So this very old suffix is still very popular. Now we find that Old English suffix at the end of a word like childish. But we also have the word childlike, and they are somewhat interchangeable in modern English. And we once had the word childly, which had essentially the same meaning. So childish, childlike, and childly have all existed as English words. And those other two suffixes, like and li, ly, are both native to Old English. They can all be used to form adjectives. And ly is actually the main way that we turn an adjective into an adverb. So from quiet to quietly, and from large to largely. The adjective and adverb forms of that suffix were slightly different in Old English, but in Middle English they converged into the same ly form for both. Now sometimes we still use both the like suffix and the li ly suffix with the same root word. So we have the words womanlike and womanly, and godlike and godly. And not only are those two suffixes used in similar ways, they are also related. The ly suffix was originally lic in Old English. It was a word that meant body or corpse. It was attached to the end of nouns to create adjectives to mean in the form of, or in the appearance of, the noun. So if something was in the form of a child, it was childlik, C-I-L-D-L-I-C. But that final C, or K sound, became silent over time, especially in the south of England. And that produced the word childly, or childly, that I mentioned earlier. But in the north of England, that C or K sound at the end was retained. There may have been some Norse influence at work as well, since Old Norse had a version of that same word where the K sound was retained. Anyway, that word eventually emerged as the distinct word like in Middle English. And that northern form eventually spread south and was adopted as the like suffix with a similar meaning as the old ly suffix. By the 1500s, English had the word 
childlike, which eventually replaced the older form childly. But as I noted, in some cases, both versions still exist in modern English, with pairs like womanlike and womanly, and godlike and godly, and gentlemanlike and gentlemanly. So we've looked at a variety of Old English suffixes that were used to create adjectives and sometimes adverbs. That includes wise, full, less, n e n, ed e d, some, e, which is just the letter y, ish, like, and li l y. All of these are still used to some extent in modern English. And that shows how durable Old English suffixes have been. Now we've looked at the creation of adjectives and adverbs in Old English, so let's turn to nouns. Old English gave us several suffixes used to create abstract nouns. Those nouns were usually used to express a general state or condition. One of those suffixes was dome, d-o-m. It was used in Old English words like kingdom. Earldom, wisdom, and freedom. You might remember that the word dome, d-o-m, meant a law or judgment in Old English, and that was the origin of this dome suffix. In words like kingdom and earldom, it had a sense of the realm that was subject to the king's judgment or the earl's judgment, so it had a sense of jurisdiction. And from there, the meaning was extended to refer to a general state or condition. The state of being wise was wisdom, and the state of being free was freedom. The dome suffix survived into Middle English, but it's been in decline ever since then. Today, it mostly exists in old words coined before the modern English period. However, it hasn't completely disappeared in new words. Within the past century or so, it's been used to form new words like fandom and stardom. Another Old English suffix used to form abstract nouns was hood, h-o-o-d. Again, much like dome, it was used to express a certain state or condition of being. It gave us words like childhood, manhood, womanhood, likelihood, and so on. The suffix was "had" (h-a-d) in Old English, and it meant condition or quality or status. And much like "dome," this "hood" suffix experienced a decline in Middle English. It's rarely been used to form new words since then. Over the past few centuries, it has produced words like "boyhood" and "girlhood," but those words are really just an extension of older terms like "manhood," "womanhood." Brotherhood and sisterhood, and other than those specific exceptions, the hood suffix is mainly a relic today. Another Old English suffix with a meaning similar to dome and hood was ship. Again, it was used to form abstract nouns. It was used to form Old English words like friendship and worship. By the way, this ship suffix is not directly related to the word ship, as in a boat, even though they both existed in Old English. The suffix ship is actually related to the word shape. Anyway, this suffix was common in Old English, and it survived into the Middle English period. In the Ancrenoisa, it appears in the words hardship and fellowship, 
which are both recorded for the first time in that document. Like the other similar suffixes, dome and hood, this ship suffix underwent a decline in Middle English. Very few words have been formed with that suffix since then. One of the few words to appear with that suffix in modern English is the word relationship. So, dome, hood, and ship all declined in Middle English as new borrowed suffixes started to come in. But it wasn't just the new suffixes that replaced dome, hood, and ship. It was also another Old English suffix, the suffix ness, N-E-S-S. This has been the most durable of the four Old English suffixes used to create abstract nouns. It gave us Old English words like darkness, sickness, and sadness. I noted a few episodes back that Layman's Brute contained the first use of the word wilderness, which was literally wild deerness. That word also appeared several times in the Uncredoisa. Now, as I said, this ness suffix has really overtaken some of those other Old English suffixes like dome, hood, and ship. It's become a standard way for us to convert an adjective into a noun. In the modern English era, we have new words like randomness, homesickness, and cohesiveness. Over time, this ness suffix has even replaced some of the older suffixes like ship. Layman's Brute used the word bold ship, but that word was later replaced by the word boldness. During this same period in the early 1200s, the words clean ship and cleanness were both in common use, sometimes in the same document. But again, cleanness with the ness suffix won out over time. Even though the ness suffix has taken up some of the space left behind by the other Old English suffixes, it hasn't been without challengers, especially from Latin and French. Consider the word clear. It's a French word, and it entered English in the late 1200s. English speakers soon took that word and added the English suffix ness to the end, producing the word clearness as a noun. So clearness is a hybrid word, a French root word with an Old English suffix. The word clearness was once very common in English, and it's still used to a certain extent in modern English. But a short time after the word clearness was coined, English borrowed the noun version of the word clear directly from French as clarity. So ever since then, clearness and clarity have existed side by side. Clearness has the Old English suffix ness, and clarity has the Latin and French suffix ity. Over the past few centuries, Clarity has emerged as the more accepted version within English. And that shows how much French and Latin suffixes have been embraced by English, to the extent that they're often preferred over native suffixes. So with that, let's shift our focus from Old English suffixes to those borrowed from Latin and French. And let's begin with that ity suffix that I just mentioned in a word like clarity. It was borrowed from Latin and French, where it was used to change the root word into a noun. So the word pure can be converted into purity. And the word purity appears for the first time in the Uncrenoisa. 
In Middle English, the suffix was often spelled as I-T-E, and sometimes as E-T-E. So the Ancrenoisa also gives us the first use of the words chaste and chastity. Chastity is spelled as C-H-A-S-T-E-T-E. The document also gives us the first recorded use of the word adversity in English, which was spelled with I-T-E. The word authority also appears for the first time, again spelled with I-T-E. And familiarity is also attested for the first time in the Ancrenoisa, also spelled with I-T-E. These words didn't get their modern spellings until the modern English period. I should note that the suffix ty, as in beauty and safety and plenty, is also derived from the same original Latin suffix as ity. So one version has an i and one doesn't. Again, in early Middle English, it usually appeared as te instead of ty. So, as I noted earlier, the French word plenty appeared for the first time in the Ancrenoisa, and it was spelled P-L-E-N-T-E. Interestingly, the original Latin root word was plenitas, so it had the I in the original Latin suffix, and that word was borrowed into English for a second time in the 1600s as plenity. So, plenty and plenity existed side by side in English for about a century or so before plenity finally disappeared. Another very common suffix that we use to form nouns is the ion suffix, often rendered as tion. Again, this suffix was borrowed from French and Latin. We typically use it to turn an adjective into a noun. So, from act to action, motivate to motivation, direct to direction, and so on. This new suffix appears in quite a few words for the first time in the Ancrenoisa. It appears in words like contemplation, devotion, temptation, distinction, salvation, and presumption. Again, all were first attested in the Ancrenoisa. In most of these words, the suffix is actually spelled C-I-U-N, which was common in early Middle English. The T-I-O-N spelling didn't really become common until later in the Middle English period. This original spelling is interesting because spellings were mostly phonetic during this period, and C-I-U-N indicates that the pronunciation was close to modern English, either C-I-N or shun. So why do we spell it T-I-O-N today? Well, it's because most of these words can be traced back to Latin, where they ended in T-I-O, T-O. And Latin had a lot of inflectional endings, one of which converted that ending to T-I-O-N-E-M, T-I-O-N-E-M. So the original Latin form of distinction was distinctionem, and the Latin form of temptation was temptationem. The M part at the end was dropped in French and English, and that left us with the T-I-O-N suffix. But again, the original pronunciation was tion. Then, in late Latin and early French, certain consonant sounds turned into sibilant sounds. In earlier episodes of the podcast, 
we saw that this process was called assimilation or palatalization. We saw that the K sound shifted to an S sound before the front vowels, E and I. And the hard G sound shifted to a soft G sound before the same front vowels. Well, this same process affected the T sound before the I in the suffix T-I-O-N. It became Xion or Sion. And that converted distinction to distinction and temptation to temptation. Again, this was just a slurring or softening of the pronunciation. And it wasn't limited to this suffix. It also helps to explain why we pronounce I-N-E-R-T-I-A as inertia and not inertia. And P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E as patience and not patience. So this was just a common sound change that took place in late Latin and early French. By the way, the word patience appears for the first time in the Ancrenoisa. As I noted earlier, this suffix often appears as T-I-O-N in modern English, but it sometimes follows a Latin root word that ended in I-O rather than T-I-O. So the suffix sometimes just appears as I-O-N instead of T-I-O-N. So in the Ancrenoisa, we get words like champion and scorpion with a simple I-O-N suffix, both of which are recorded for the first time in English. Regardless of form, this I-O-N or T-I-O-N suffix is one of the most common suffixes in the English language today. Another very common suffix that we use to form nouns is the suffix ment, M-E-N-T. This suffix was borrowed from French, and it ultimately comes from the Latin suffix mentum. It appears in the Ancrenoisa in words like judgment and ornament. Both of those words appear for the first time in English in that text. Over the centuries, the ment suffix has usually been attached to French and Latin root words, but it has become so accepted within English that it is sometimes attached to native English root words as well. When combined with English roots, it has resulted in words like acknowledgement and atonement. Another suffix borrowed from Latin and French to convert a verb into a noun was ants, A-N-C-E, which also appears as ents, E-N-C-E. These can be traced back to the Latin suffixes antia, A-N-T-I-A, and entia, E-N-T-I-A. This was really the same suffix. The form varied depending on the vowel sound and the root word that the suffix was attached to. In French, these two separate versions converged into ants, A-N-C-E, but then the form with the E started to be adopted when the original Latin root word ended in entia, E-N-T-I-A. So over the years, English has borrowed words with both versions of the suffix. In the Ancrenoisa, the A-N-C-E suffix appears in the words ignorance and acquaintance, which both appear for the first time in English. And the E-N-C-E ending appears in the word patience, which, as I noted earlier, is also recorded for the first time in English in the Ancrenoisa.
Another suffix that's used to create nouns in English is the suffix age or edge, age. This is another suffix from Latin and French, and it has an interesting history within English. It came in very early on with the Normans, and it's actually more common in modern English than modern French. So it was one of those French suffixes that was embraced in the early Middle English period, and it's thrived ever since. Today we have it in words like message, beverage, average, storage, damage, postage, and so on. But if we go back to the origin of the suffix in English, we would find that it has a close association with European feudalism. The original Latin suffix was atticus or atticum, depending on how it was being used in a sentence. That original suffix meant belonging to or related to. Though it was used in many words in Latin, it had one particular association with words related to payments. For example, Latin had the word pulveraticum, which was a payment for hard agricultural labor. It became pulverage in French. As the feudal system became ingrained in France in the early Middle Ages, it was a system that depended on a variety of relationships, typically defined by various services and obligations, and also defined by specific payments. As these new types of payments and obligations emerged, new words had to be coined within French to describe those features. And many of those new words were modeled on existing words like pulverage, which was a specific type of payment. Within French, this produced words like homage or homage. As we know, a vassal had to swear an oath of homage to his lord. A toll or fee on the use of a cellar or storehouse was called cellarage. A collection of prominent nobles was known as the baronage. And a collection of vassals was the vassalage. The peasants or villains were called the villainage. We can see this link between feudalism and the edge suffix very early on in English. One of the first words to appear in an English document with this edge suffix was another word associated with feudalism. But interestingly, it was a native English construction. In a charter that was written down in the year 1195, the word "hidage" appears. Now you might remember that a hide was a specific amount of land in the Anglo-Saxon period, so hide is an Old English word. After the Norman conquest and the forced introduction of feudalism to England, a tax was levied on each hide of land. And English speakers were already familiar enough with French terms associated with feudalism that they coined their own term "hidage" based on the model of similar French terms. English soon coined other words in this same manner by attaching the "age" suffix to native English words. The word "thonage," meaning the land held by a thane, appeared around the current point in our story in the early 1200s. The word bondage appeared a short time later. Bond is a native English word, and the word bondage referred to the system of obligations that bound a vassal to a lord. English also coined the word barnage in early Middle English. Bairn was an Old English word for a small child, 
and it still survives in northern England and Scotland. So barnage meant childhood or infancy. This suffix also made an appearance in the Ancranoisa. It appeared in the word heritage, which is the first recorded use of that word in English. The document also contains the first English use of the word pottage, which is an early form of the word porridge. And from there, it became a very common suffix in English, forming other words like marriage, village, package, and even the word language, which is kind of important to this podcast. So that's the suffix edge or age. Another very common English suffix borrowed from Latin and French is ery, as in robbery, treachery, bribery, pottery, bakery, and battery. In fact, the first two of those words, robbery and treachery, appear for the first time in the Ancranoisa. That suffix is closely related to the ary suffix that we also use in English, as in necessary, secretary, dictionary, glossary, and January. We also have it in the word anniversary, which appeared for the first time in the Ancranoisa. Both of these suffixes are ultimately derived from Latin, specifically the related Latin suffixes arius and arium. Early on, there was a split in the way this suffix evolved in the various French dialects. Within Norman French, and more specifically the Anglo-Norman dialect spoken in England, it evolved into the ary suffix that we use today. But within the dialects of central France, the suffix evolved into IER, which produced the ERY suffix in Middle English words borrowed from French. The important thing to take from all of that is that the ARY suffix is really derived from the early Anglo Norman dialect, and it's really a development that mostly took place within England. Back in France, the original Latin suffix evolved into AIR, A I R E. And that's why English has contrary, where French has contraire. So when English borrowed words from French, it tended to replace that French air suffix with the more English version, airy. So English has necessary, where French has necessaire. And English has solitary, where French has solitaire. In fact, English borrowed the word solitaire from later French, so English actually has both versions of that word today. Sometimes, the French air suffix has been borrowed in beside a word with the airy suffix, and over time, the version with the French air suffix has emerged as the standard version in English. So, for example, Middle English had the word questionary, which meant a list of questions. But in the 20th century, the modern French word questionnaire replaced it. So the newer French suffix replaced the original Anglo-Norman suffix. I should also note that the pronunciation of the airy suffix varies within modern English. Over the past couple of centuries, many modern English dialects have shortened that suffix from airy to just re in a lot of words. So secretary became secretary. But American English has held on to that original airy pronunciation. So that's left us with lots of different pronunciations of that old suffix. 
Today we have American English secretary, British English secretary, and French secrétaire. But again, these are all variations of the same suffix that can be traced back to Latin. Now, in addition to the ery and ary suffixes from Latin and French, we also have the ory suffix, ori. We have it in words like oratory, observatory, purgatory, and dormitory. This suffix was mainly derived from the Latin suffixes oria, o-r-i-a, and orium, o-r-i-u-m. Again, those suffixes became ori, o-r-i-e, in the Norman dialect of England, and eventually came to be spelled as o-r-y. Sometimes we have both the Norman English version of a word and the original Latin version. That's the case with crematory and crematorium. This suffix is attested for one of the first times in English in the Ancranoisa. It appears in the word purgatory, which is the first recorded use of that word in an English document. The Ancranoisa also includes a few other French words with that ending, words like memory, history, and story, but in those words, the endings are not really suffixes. They're just part of the root word. But I wanted to mention those words, specifically the word memory, because it shows how this suffix has evolved separately within modern French. Again, the word memory is recorded for the first time in English in the Ancranoisa. Memory reflects the Norman pronunciation of that word ending as ori. But in standard French, it became hoire. And English borrowed that word again from later French as memoir or memoir. American English tends to pronounce the R sound at the end, but British English doesn't. Another word that appears for the first time in the Ancranoisa is the word arms, as in weapons. It was borrowed from French, and a short time later, English borrowed the word armory, which meant a weapons arsenal, or a place where weapons were kept. But in the 1500s, that word was borrowed again from French as armoire, or armoire, with its modern French ending. And today, we use that modern French version of the word to mean a cupboard or wardrobe. Now, before I conclude, let me mention one other French and Latin suffix that appeared in the Ancranoisa. The suffix us, O-U-S, appeared in words like jealous, malicious, and dangerous. It's based on the Latin suffix osus, O-S-U-S, which became O-U-S in French and was introduced to English around the time of the Ancranoisa. So, as you can see, a lot of Latin and French suffixes were starting to pour into English in the early 1200s. And the Ancranoisa contains a lot of those suffixes for the first time in an English document. Over the past couple of episodes, I've tried to focus on prefixes and suffixes that were being used in the early 1200s. So that included those from Old English, as well as some of the earliest borrowings from Latin, French, and Greek. As the Middle English period progressed, more and more of those elements came in from across the channel. And I'll probably look at some of those other prefixes and suffixes that came in later in future episodes. But for now, I'm going to leave the topic there. Over the next couple of episodes, we'll move the story forward into the mid and late 1200s.
We'll pick back up with the historical narrative as we progress deeper into the Middle English period. And we'll explore some other interesting developments that impacted the evolution of English. So until next time, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. 